folks on Zoom. So welcome to you all. Um, as always, I just want to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the things that the Lord has for us tonight. Heavenly Father, of course, we just want to thank you so much how incredibly good and faithful you are to us. And Lord, you show that to us every day, every day. You are with us. You are present. You are in the midst of everything that's going on. Father, all the reasons that we have to rejoice and to celebrate, you are the one bringing those things about. And in the midst of difficulty and hardship and the obstacles that we face, you are right there with us as well. You're walking with us in all of these things. And we're just so grateful to you for that. And Father, we are just so uh, incredibly encouraged this time of year to remember your willingness to send your son into the world. And Jesus, your willingness to come and to completely and in every way uh, identify yourself with us. Lord, we have been talking about your second coming, and your second coming is going to be in power and great glory. And what a contrast. What a contrast to your first coming. Because, Lord, you came in such incredible humility, and you set so much aside when you came 2,000 years ago. And so we just want to thank you for that. And thank you for all that your coming into this world means for each one of us. Father, we want to thank you for another opportunity to be together tonight. Another opportunity, Lord, to uh, come and spend time in your word and to hear you speak to us. And we pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here that he would be speaking to us and making the scriptures clear to us, that he would be helping us to be attentive, help us to be discerning, help us to rightly understand, Lord, uh, everything that is in your heart for us tonight. We thank you for the blessing of being able to consider the theme of eschatology, to consider what it is that you say about what has come and what is coming. And Father, as always, we just, we ask for your wisdom. We need your help, Lord God. And particularly with a challenging subject like this, you remind us that we are completely dependent on you. Our wisdom, our understanding, our cleverness, Lord, none of that will help. But Lord, we know that it is your desire to reveal yourself to us. Jesus, you want us to know you. You want us to understand you. You want us to know your word. And so we just pray that you would help each one of us to genuinely seek you, to seek you together as a group in this time tonight, knowing that you will speak and make things clear. And we thank you for all of these things. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his name alone, Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who were part of the group a couple of weeks ago, you know that we started to look at the theme that we're referring to as the signs of the times. So again, hopefully folks on Zoom have access to the sheet that says that at the top and folks here uh, have that in front of you. We looked at that introductory pas passage, uh, Matthew 16, 1 to 4, and really that passage was just a group of, of, of folks who were doubting Jesus. 
doubting his authority, doubting his ministry, doubting his identity. And they basically came to him and said, you know, what sign do you give us? And then Jesus went on to say, you know, look, you know what the weather is going to be when you look at the sky. You know, if it's a certain color at night, you know what tomorrow is going to be. If it's a certain color in the morning, you know what the day is going to be. He said, you know how to read the face of the heavens, or you know how to look at the sky and predict the weather, but you are unable to understand or discern or be aware of the signs of the times. And then he goes on to say, you know, a wicked and adulterous generation seek a sign. The only sign that you will be given is the sign of Jonah. But what he was saying is you don't understand what my father and I are up to. You don't understand the signs of the times. You don't understand that the son of God has come into the world. You don't understand that he's standing right in front of you. You don't understand that he is bringing the father's kingdom into this world and the beginning of the end for the enemy and the kingdom of darkness has come. So basically what he was doing is he was rebuking them for their ignorance. He was rebuking them for their inability and unwillingness to see what he and the father were up to. And so really in a very, very broad sense, we always want to be pursuing an understanding of what God is up to. What is God doing? What is God doing? Now, of course, we can look at that in a very, very small sense. You know, what is God doing in my life? You know, what is God showing me right now? What is God challenging me with right now? How does the Lord want me to grow? What does the Lord want me to let go of? So we can think of it in terms of very, very personal and very small scale. But what we've been looking at is a much grander scale. What is God up to in the world right now? What is God up to in the world right now? And since the coming of Christ into the world 2,000 years ago, until his return, what is God doing? And that's what we started to look at in greater detail. But yeah, you have a comment or a question? What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah, Jesus actually expands it in another place in the Gospels. I don't remember exactly where, but he says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In the Matthew 16, one to four passage, the one we have here, as far as I remember, he actually does not expand the sign of Jonah there. But in another place, I, I, I apologize, I don't remember where it is, he gives that expanded understanding of the sign of Jonah. Okay? So what we are looking at in large measure comes from Matthew chapter 24. A lot of the signs that we're looking at on that sheet in front of you are referenced in Matthew 24. And remember, Matthew 24 is the night before Jesus is to go to the cross. It's a short time before he is going to be betrayed. 
He actually goes to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. So sometimes Matthew 24 and 25 are referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it occurred on the Mount of Olives. And remember the introduction to this two-chapter teaching in Matthew 24 is that the disciples and Jesus are walking around the temple complex or walking by the temple complex. And the disciples point out to Jesus just how amazing this temple complex was. Remember, this is the temple that's oftentimes referred to as Herod's temple. It took Herod 46 years to build. And so it was a very impressive human structure. But Jesus, unlike his disciples, is very unimpressed with it. And he says, you know, a day is coming when there won't even be one stone left on top of another. So Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. And of course, accompanying that is the destruction of Jerusalem. We know now that that took place in 70 AD. When Jesus is speaking, the words that are recorded for us in Matthew 24 and 25, it's probably around 30 or 33 AD, somewhere in that vicinity. We don't know the exact year according to our calendar that Jesus died and rose again, but somewhere around 30 AD in that neighborhood. So about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus is predicting that this will take place. Then on their own, once Jesus and the disciples are by themselves on the Mount of Olives, the disciples ask Jesus actually sort of a, a twofold question. They said, when will this be, or when will these things be, referring specifically to not one stone left standing on another, the destruction of Jerusalem, when will these things be? So when will the destruction of Jerusalem take place? And what will be the sign of your coming? There's that word sign. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So probably in the disciples' mind, they were asking a single question. Because probably from their understanding at this point, the return of Jesus and the end of the age and the destruction of the temple were all going to occur at the same time. So probably in their mind, they weren't thinking that these were actually two separate events. The return of Jesus and the end of the age and the destruction of the temple. But then as Jesus gives the answer to the these questions or this two-part question in Matthew 24 and 25, we see him making reference to things that will be occurring throughout the entirety of the New Testament age, okay? So last week, we started and we looked at that first group of signs that are evidences of God's grace. The first one we looked at is the advancement of the gospel. It says in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel will be preached to every tribe or to every uh, the ends of the earth. 
and then the end will come. So Matthew 24, 14 specifically connects the advancement of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel with the arrival of the end. So one of the things that is going on right now is the preaching of the gospel, is the advancement of the gospel. And we've seen that for the last 2,000 years. The gospel is going forth. The gospel is going forth. So one of the things that we have to understand is that now that Jesus has come, as we are waiting for his return, one of the things that is going on in this period is that the gospel is advancing. So that's one of the signs that Jesus gives to his disciples and as an answer. What will be the sign of your return and the end of the age? Well, Jesus is basically saying one of them is the advance of the gospel. Now, one of the things that we need to understand is that what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 14 is incredibly clear, but it's not absolutely precise. It says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So again, some people look at that as a way to determine exactly when Jesus will come. When will the gospel have been preached to the end of the earth and to all the nations? And so again, that, that, that sort of human, I don't know what you would call it, curiosity to try to narrow the date of Christ's return. But remember, we saw very clearly that the New Testament warns against that, that Jesus himself warns against that. So one of the things that we are not to do with these signs is to use them to try to come up with a precise date for the return of Jesus. That's not why Jesus gives these signs in Matthew 24. So it's not to come up with a precise date for the return of Jesus. It's rather to show us that he has come and that he is coming. The signs assure us of the return of Jesus Christ without absolutely giving us an exact date for that return. So again, looking at verse 14, it says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, when do we actually know that the gospel has been preached to the ends of the earth and all the nations? Remember, we looked last week at a couple of passages in Colossians, where Paul, from his perspective, said that the gospel had been preached throughout the whole world. Well, he was thinking of the Roman world. The gospel had penetrated all of the Roman Empire. So in other words, even though Jesus is very clear, it's not absolutely precise. And that lack of precision is not a fault. It is just a reminder that this is not to be used as a verse to try to date or predict the date of Christ's return. Okay? Then the second sign we looked at actually is not found specifically in Matthew 24, but is found in Romans 11. And it talks about the fullness of the Gentiles being saved, and then all Israel being saved, or the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, 
and then all Israel will be saved. So it's an incredibly debated and disagreed upon passage. And so we don't want to take the time to go into that in this class, but a specific component of the advancement of the gospel is the salvation of Jews. So what we see in the New Testament church is that early on, the entirety of the church was Jewish. And then in accordance with Jesus said in Acts chapter one, then the gospel went to the half Jews to the Samaritans, to folks who were partially Jewish, partially Gentile. Then the gospel advanced to the nations, the Gentiles. And eventually what happened was, instead of the Gentiles being a minority in a primarily Jewish church, the Jews became a minority in a primarily Gentile church. And in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul says, look, the rejection on the part of the nation of Israel, of Jesus as the Messiah, is not a failure on God's part. As that early church was seeing a lot of the Jews reject the gospel, even as Jesus saw a lot of the Jews reject him, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, this is not a failure on God's part. In fact, their rejection opens up the way for Gentiles to be saved. Their hardening allows Gentiles to come into the kingdom. But then he goes on to say, but you Gentiles don't get puffed up with pride because if God was able to remove the natural olive branch, that's what he calls the Jews, then he's certainly able to remove you, the grafted in olive branch. And what he goes on to say is, in fact, the salvation of the Gentiles in part is making the Jews jealous for salvation. So at the end of that, or close to the end of that, in Romans 11, 25, and 26, the Apostle Paul says, look, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And so all we're really gathering from that is that there is a continuing advancement of the gospel, not only to all of the nations, but specifically to the Jews. And again, if you do any sort of research into the number of ethnic Jews accepting Christ, the number is constantly increasing, constantly increasing. You know, in the 20th century alone, more Jews had accepted Christ than in the previous 1900 centuries. That was the, you know, research that I read from some organization that was able to kind of track that. I don't know how you figure how many Jews had accepted Jesus in 1900 years. But in other words, it's a sign of the times. It's a sign of the times. So as the disciples are saying, you know, Lord, when are these things going to take place? And what is the sign of your return and the end of the age? Jesus is saying the, the advance of the gospel and specifically the salvation of the Jews are two of the things that are going to be happening throughout the entirety of the church age, giving evidence that I will return, giving evidence that the kingdom is here, that the kingdom is growing, and that it is coming to its culmination when I come a second time. Okay? Then the next group of signs on the sheet there 
are what we label signs that indicate opposition to the Lord. And we talked last time about the sign of tribulation. Sorry, I'm going to get my thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, is that a question or a comment? Okay. So one of the signs that there is going to be opposition to Christ, that there is going to be opposition to his kingdom, is the sign of tribulation. So again, looking specifically at Matthew 24, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other. So Jesus is not painting a super rosy picture there, but he's basically saying another hallmark of the New Testament age is going to be is going to be the persecution of believers. This is not something that occurs only at the final moments before his return. Sometimes you hear folks when talking about this talk about the great tribulation or talk about the seven-year tribulation of Revelation, and we'll get into that a little bit more tonight. But what we are seeing is that Jesus says that Tribulation, persecution, opposition, these things are going to be occurring from the very, very get-go. Jesus himself was persecuted. In the Sermon on the Mount, the second passage there, Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Jesus says that you should rejoice when you face persecution for my name's sake. So here he is preparing the disciples for a life of tribulation and persecution. The John 16.33 passage, in this world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation, exact same word that's used there in John 16.33, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So another sign of the New Testament era, another sign indicating that the kingdom of God is here, that the kingdom of God is growing, and it will continue to grow until the return of Jesus Christ, is the opposition to that kingdom. So it's a very different way of looking at persecution. Persecution is, is yeah, it, it's tough. It's awful. It's the people of God suffering. But what Jesus says is that actually is an assurance that the kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God is advancing. But as it advances, it will face opposition, just as the, Jesus did. But if nailing Jesus to a cross and killing the Son of God couldn't stop the kingdom of God, but in fact, in the sovereign purposes of God, were the very means by which salvation came into the world, then when we as believers are persecuted, when we as believers face opposition, when we see the church around the world facing opposition, I mean, of course, on the because it's tough. I mean, it's tough to be tortured for your faith. It's tough to be thrown into prison for your faith. But on the other hand, that's not going to stop the kingdom. And in fact, it's evidence 
looking at it from a different perspective, it's evidence that the kingdom of God is here. It's evidence that the kingdom of God is growing. And it's evidence that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. So will tribulation increase as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But should we as the church be looking to be rescued from this world before the really bad tribulation comes? Absolutely not. For 2,000 years, many, 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 many of our brothers and sisters have suffered horrific persecution and tribulation. You know, how can we say, oh, that's not real suffering, that's not real tribulation, that's not the bad stuff that's coming. No, the church is going to be whisked up into heaven and avoid all that. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is not even remotely being true to the word of God, being true to the teaching of Jesus himself. We will suffer. That is simply part of following Christ. So another sign of the time is tribulation. Yes, of course, it is difficult. And praise God, it comes to an end. And we should certainly pray with great empathy for our brothers and sisters who are experiencing it worse than us. But it also is an assurance that the kingdom of God is here, that Jesus is returning, and he will absolutely complete the work of the kingdom when he comes again. Okay? The second sign, then, that shows opposition to God is the sign of apostasy. Now, the word apostasy actually comes from a Greek word, which in verbal form simply means to turn away. So the word apostasy simply means a turning away, or to apostatize means to turn away. And of course, within the context of the New Testament, it means to turn away from the Lord. It means to turn away from the faith. Again, in Matthew 24, Jesus gives us a reference to that. Verse 24, um, well, even verse, verse, excuse me, chapter 24, even verse 11, uh, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Deception can certainly be a, a part of apostasy. But then verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. So that also is a type of apostasy. So another sign of the New Testament age that Jesus gives is the sign of apostasy. Yes, Elliot, you have a question? There's apostasy, the word related to apostle, and if it is, what does apostle mean? No, two totally different words. The, the Greek root behind apostle is apostello, which means to send. The Greek word behind apostasy is 
aphistemi, which means to turn away. So again, similar sort of beginnings to them, um, but two totally different roots. So the, the Greek word from which we get our word apostle in verbal form simply means to send. So strictly speaking, an apostle is someone who is sent. Um, this is a word that's used in a very secular sense in the New Testament. You can send a letter. You can send a messenger. Once Jesus uses it as a designation for the 12, he is specializing the one who is sent as specifically one who is sent by him. And then this word apostle then becomes a designation for an office in the New Testament church. But there were apostolos before Jesus used that designation. It could just be one who was sent on behalf of someone else. So, so yeah, so two different roots here. So the, the word apostasy comes from this Greek word, aphistemi, which means to turn away, okay? Um, the Hebrew 6, 4 to 6 passage, we won't read that, but it actually is a very sobering passage about apostasy. The author of Hebrews talks about those who have enjoyed certain aspects of the kingdom. If they fall away, is the word that he uses there. So not quite the same word, but one connected to it. It's impossible for them to be restored. But let's take a look at the first John passage. First John chapter two, verse 19. And maybe we could have uh, one of you volunteer to read that. First John chapter two, verse 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So what is the Apostle John describing there? What is he describing there? And folks on Zoom, you can jump in and answer as well if you would like. But what is the Apostle John describing there in the verse that Elliot read for us? Evangelism. How do you see evangelism there? Well, they went out from them. Oh, 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 oh. yes, I see. Um, yes, certainly the church sends out folks to evangelize, but that is not what John is talking about here. We're obviously, we're taking it out of context so yeah, for absolutely, I can see how in a different context, being yeah. sent out would entail evangelism. But the key here is it says, uh, but they did not really belong to us. Yeah, okay. So who, who are the, those that are going out? Hmm. Yeah, Ted? Is this on the context? is antichrists. So those people who have, it may be not the antichrist, but people who have turned against Christ, people who, who started out, uh, it's like the, the holy apostasy turning away. They started out with us, 
being members of the flock, members of the fold, but they've turned against Christ. They've betrayed him. And so they've gone out. They've separated. Absolutely. And as you'll, you'll see, number three on the evidences of opposition to God is the theme of Antichrist. And you see that second passage, 1 John 2, 18 and 22. So two of the verses that bracket the one that we read. So it's actually kind of hard to deal with them in separation from one another. But John is saying, he's speaking to a group of believers, and he's saying that there were some who went out. So some went out from the group of believers. And then what he goes on to say is, but they were not really part of us. Because had they been part of us, they would have remained. They would have remained. So John here is basically talking about apostasy. Folks who were part of the fellowship of believers for a time, but then sooner or later, John doesn't tell us, they walk away from the fellowship of believers. And what John is saying is that's actually evidence that they were never really part of us. Because if they really had been part of the true fellowship of believers, what would they have done? They would have remained. Yes, Elliot. I'm, I'm wondering also if that could have been referring to disciples. Um, in John, the book of John, Jesus had more than 12 disciples. And then he made a statement that you have to um, drink his blood and eat his flesh. And disciples, most of the disciples left at that point. Could that be also related to that? Yeah, the passage that you're referring to is the Gospel of John chapter 6. Okay, and it's the, the end of the chapter where John tells us that some of his disciples left him. What I would say in 1 John, it's certainly possible but the designation is too general and too broad to specify. All we can really gather from what John writes here is that these were folks who had been part of the fellowship of believers. That's what he is getting at when he says they left us. Remember, he obviously, as an apostle, is writing to believers. So he's talking about individuals who left them, who left the fellowship of believers. And he says that is evidence that they were not part of us. So, you know, where they were in terms of were they new converts? Had they walked with the Lord for years? You know, John doesn't go into those details. But basically what he is reinforcing is what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24. That one of the things that will occur in this age is apostasy. And again, like tribulation, it is a sign of opposition to God and a sign of opposition to the kingdom of God. So apostasy is one of the things that Jesus warns us about that is a sign of this time, which is the New Testament age. Yeah, someone on Zoom? Yeah, please, Camille. Um, question, and maybe it was for a little bit earlier, but this idea of um well i'm thinking of of paul and acts 26 and his persecuting believers and i guess some translations say that he compelled them to blaspheme others say he was trying to do that at any rate i'm wondering 
you know, for believers who are, let's say, being tortured or what have you, and, and they break perhaps and, and deny Christ, where does that fit uh, in this whole idea of, you know, apostasy? Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, I think to me, Camille, one of the most helpful New Testament passages about that is the parable of the prodigal son, where obviously the prodigal has a place in the father's house in the parable. He spurns that, leaves the father's house, squanders everything that the father gave him, and then in humility and repentance returns to the father's house. I think another helpful parable that Jesus tells is the parable of the hundred sheep, where Jesus leaves the 99 to go after the one. And having found the one, you know, it comes back to the fold because he says, you know, it's not my father will, will that any should be lost or some translations, any should perish. So again, I think you know, what the New Testament challenges us to do is evaluate based on what we see. But ultimately, where a person stands is only between that person and the Lord. So certainly, it can seem like someone is walking with Christ, be part of a fellowship, and then leave. And that can be an indication, as we see in 1 John 2.19, that they were never really part of that fellowship. They were never really part of the body of Christ. But like the, the younger son and the prodigal son, or that one sheep that Jesus goes after, someone can wander for a time and be brought back, and be brought back. And so, you know, the issue of apostasy in the New Testament, what I see is that the threat of apostasy is real, because it's given as a warning in many places. When we did Peter and Jude, Peter in particular and Jude in particular warn against the threat of apostasy. And so I think we need to make that, you know, I think we need to take that to heart that the threat of apostasy is real. But to the point that you're making, Camille, I think it is absolutely possible to walk with the Lord, to wander, and then come back to the Lord. Now, at the time of wandering, would that be considered apostasy? I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. You know, again, like I say, I, I believe what Jesus challenges us to do is simply deal with a person in the way that they are walking. So if someone is walking as a believer, then we treat them as a believer. If someone is walking as an unbeliever, then we treat them as an unbeliever. The person who's walking as an unbeliever, are they really a believer who's going to come back? Or are they one who has become an unbeliever because they have committed apostasy. I think ultimately that is for the Lord to decide. One of the things that I love about apostasy is not the turning away, because that's obviously an incredibly grievous sign, just like tribulation. It's an incredibly heartbreaking sign. But embedded within the idea of apostasy is the doctrine of perseverance. And this, to me, is one of the most powerful, one of the most beautiful New Testament doctrines. And we see it right there in Matthew 24. So going back to Matthew 24, let's look together at verse 13. Matthew 24, verse 13, 
Jesus says, but he who stands firm or he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And so this idea of perseverance, this idea of making it to the end, Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. So at any moment, at any snapshot, a person may look like a believer or a person may look like an unbeliever. But what Jesus says here is that one of the clear indications of a genuine disciple, a genuine follower of Christ, a genuine conversion, is that they ultimately persevere and make it to the end. They are the one that will be saved. And that, to me, is just an incredibly assuring sort of complementary doctrine to the idea of apostasy. That's why, as followers of Jesus, we can never take a spiritual vacation. That's why, as followers of Jesus, we can never take time off. Because the threat of apostasy is real. The threat of apostasy is real. Praise God that we have all made it to this point. But just because, you know, we get to 60 as a believer, or we get to 70 as a believer, or we've walked with Jesus 40 years, that doesn't mean, okay, I can take a spiritual vacation and just coast on into heaven. No, you've got to persevere to the end. And as Jesus says, the one who perseveres to the end is the one who will be saved. And so to me, one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful, good fruit evidences of genuine conversion is the saint who perseveres, the saint who ultimately makes it to the end. So the threat of apostasy is real. We can't take it lightly. The fellowship of believers that John was writing to had already experienced it. It certainly seems like the author of Hebrews was writing a firsthand experience to a group of believers as well. But in the face of that, as we continue to put our trust in Jesus, as we continue to put our hope in Jesus, as we continue to persevere and walk with Jesus, that is the daily strong assurance that we have that the work of God in our heart is genuine. And we keep going till that moment when Jesus calls us home or Jesus returns. Okay? Yeah, Libby, you have a comment or a question? Hi. Um, I was trying to find the verse, but I, I couldn't. I think it might be one of the Timothys or um, Titus, but there's a verse that says, the Lord knows who are those who are his. Um, and I, I don't fully remember the context, but just that phrase of like, God knows um, those who belong to him. Amen. I apologize, Libby. I do not remember where that is yeah, either. <laughs> if anyone remembers and wants to share it, in a moment, please, please feel free to do so. But thank you for bringing that up, Libby. The Lord knows those who are his, right? Or who those who belong to him? Yeah. Yeah, Ted, you had a question? Yeah, it's more of a, of a comment on the idea of 
perseverance and endurance. My, my favorite passage about that is in Hebrews 10, or, or maybe it's in Hebrews 2, but toward the end of the chapter, he says, um, we should not throw away our confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. He says, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back to destruction, my soul has no pleasure in him. But the writer of the Hebrews says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. That would be the apostates. But those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. That's just uh, such a, a re, I think, a reaffirmation of the principle we're talking about here. Yeah. And even that very, very unsettling passage that we did not read, that you can read on your own labor later, uh, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Later on in that chapter, the author of Hebrews says, but I am confident of greater things for you. So even in the face of apostasy, even in the face of the threat of apostasy, there still is that strong assurance that we are in Christ, that we are in Christ. And the evidence of that is that faith working itself out over the course of our life is us continuing to put our faith daily in Christ. The last passage there, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, 1 to 3, we're actually going to read that in a second when we get down to the theme of Antichrist. But what it seems that Paul is writing is that very, very close to the return of Jesus Christ, there is going to be a great apostasy. He simply makes reference to the apostasy. And again, like all of the signs, what it seems as if is that apostasy is something that is going to occur throughout the entirety of the church age. But as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, it's going to increase. And it will culminate in a final great apostasy, which we'll read about in a second. But any other thoughts or comments about the idea of apostasy before we jump down to this Third sign that is evidence of the op of opposition to, to God. Okay, so then the last one that we're going to talk about is the idea of Antichrist. And again, Antichrist is actually a word that only occurs four times in Scripture and only occurs in 1 John and 2 John. Nowhere else does the word antichrist appear. So when we think of antichrist or when we think of the antichrist, we may think, oh, this is someone that's mentioned frequently in scripture. And as we're going to see, yes, it certainly is an idea that's mentioned frequently in scripture. But the word itself, either in the singular or the plural, is only used in four verses or four passages of scripture, three of them in 1 John, and one of them in 2 John. But we're going to see the idea of Antichrist goes beyond that. So again, looking at the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, if we look at verse 5, Jesus says, For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Now, someone who claims to be Christ and is not, we would refer to as a false Christ. And in fact, Jesus will use that 
exact same phrase a little bit later in Matthew 24 in verses uh, 23 and 24. Because there he says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So false Christs, false prophets. So we see there's sort of a, a cluster of titles that are very connected here. As Ted mentioned earlier, the word antichrist, the word anti in this case means opposed to or against. So Antichrist is anything that is opposed to Christ or anything that is against Christ, an enemy of Christ, an opponent of Christ. That's what the word Antichrist means. But closely connected to it is the concept of false Christs, people who claim to be Christ, people who claim to be a Messiah, or false prophets. Obviously, you can see the connection here. So again, within the larger context, Jesus says these guys are going to pop up throughout the entirety of the church age. And they are again a sign that I have come, that my kingdom is here, that my kingdom is growing, and that I will come again. Remember, as followers of Jesus, we are called upon to be aware of what is going on in the world around us. So as we see those who are false saviors, false messiahs, false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, false Christs, as those who are against Christ. All of this is fitting into this category. Wait a second. This is a sign of the time. This is a sign of the age in which Jesus has called me to live. And this is absolute confirmation that Jesus has come, that his kingdom is here, that his kingdom is growing, and that he will come again. Absolute assurance. So even though, again, this sign is a very negative, somewhat discouraging sign. It still has embedded in it that strong assurance. That strong assurance. Now going back to 1 John 2, as we look at the verses around 1 John 2.19. Remember, 1 John 2.19 was the verse that talked about those who went out from the fellowship of believers. Well, now we see there's a connection between that idea and the idea of Antichrist. So in verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So again, that idea, as we've seen with all of the signs, the signs are taking place right now. And they will continue to take place and increase until the return of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John said it's the last hour. How do we know it's the last hour? Because many antichrists have already come. Within that first generation of followers of Jesus, this is the apostle of Jesus. That's the John we're talking about. Many antichrists have already come. You've heard that antichrist is coming, and that's right. Antichrist is coming. But you also need to understand Antichrist is here. Antichrist has already come. That's how we know we're living in the end times, the last days, 
the last hour, not a brief moment of history just before the return of Jesus Christ, but the entirety of the New Testament age. How do we know that? Well, because many antichrists have gone out, because there is apostasy, because there is tribulation, because there is the proclamation of the gospel, because there is the salvation of Jews. That's how we know. That's how we know we're living in the last days. That's how we know we're living in the end of the ages. That's how the church 2,000 years ago knew they were living in the last days. Knew that they were living in the end of the ages. That's how the church for 2,000 years has known that they were living in this final period of redemptive history. And whether Jesus comes tonight or comes back in 10,000 years, every generation of the church should be aware because of the signs of the times that we are living in the end of the ages. How do we know that? Well, one way we know that is because Antichrist. Antichrist is coming, but many Antichrists have already come. Then jumping down to verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Jesus is only a good man. Antichrist. Jesus is only a good prophet. Antichrist. Jesus is only a moral example. Antichrist. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is Antichrist. That's all the spirit of Antichrist. And that is evidence, a sign of the time. Jumping down to John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Maybe if one of you can read that. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Okay, this is, a, I think, an off-the-wall question, but I'll ask it. Um, so you, you ex can you exhibit antichrist behavior in denying that Jesus is the Son of God versus uh, just not believing in him? Or are they the, one of the same thing? Uh, ask the question again. I guess the question is, uh, Ted, do you, are you, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, is not, I think, is not believing in Jesus and denying that he's the Christ, are those the same thing? Yeah. In other words, not fully embracing everything that Jesus is. Because when John in that 1 John 2.22 passage says, you know, denying that he is the Christ, you know, the Christ in that context, strictly speaking, Christ just means one who is anointed, one who is anointed. But in this case, the idea of the anointed one was the one that God was going to send into the world to save the world. 
So anything less than that, anything less than declaring that Jesus is absolutely the one and only one that God sends into the world to save the world ultimately is the spirit of Antichrist. So again, the reason why I gave the examples I did before is because you hear a lot of people today say relatively, what appear to be relatively innocuous things about Jesus. Oh yeah, he was a great teacher. Oh yeah, he was a moral example. Oh yeah, he was a prophet. I had a conversation with a Muslim about a month ago and he was like, yeah, well, the Quran teaches that Jesus was a prophet, but that Muhammad was a greater prophet and that he is not the son of God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the spirit of Antichrist. You know, and maybe even looking at this, this passage, uh, would someone read for us 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3? Because this, I think, will help answer this as well. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus, I'm sorry, yeah, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus as not from God. Yeah, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus, that spirit God. is not from God. I know the, the wording there is a little tricky. Yeah, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So denying that Jesus came from the Father, denying that Jesus came in the flesh. You see what Paul, excuse me, what John is getting at are the very, very core doctrines of Christianity. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus came from the Father. Jesus came in the flesh. We can add to that. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the only means of salvation. You know, denying any of that in whole or in part is the spirit of Antichrist. And the presence of Antichrists, the presence of the spirit of Antichrist is a sign of the time, is an assurance that Jesus gives us that we are living in the end of the ages, is an assurance that he came, that his kingdom is here, that his kingdom is growing, and that he will come again. All of these, even the negative ones, are ultimately assurances of the ultimate triumph of Jesus. Yeah, Elliot, please. Does this mean that it's a misinterpretation that there will actually be an individual that is called the Antichrist? No. Although the best description of that individual Paul does not refer to him as Antichrist. But let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. This is a fairly long passage, if one of you would be willing to read it. But remember, we said the word Antichrist is only used in these four passages in 1 John. But the individual that Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2 certainly could rightly be called the Antichrist. Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness. But this, this is a final individual that appears 
just before the return of Christ. So in a sense, this man of lawlessness is the culmination of all antichrists who have come before him. But let's, let's read how Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself about above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And do you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe in the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So even though Paul does not use the word antichrist, I think it absolutely is appropriate to refer to this man of lawlessness. That's the designation that the Apostle Paul gives him as the culmination and ultimate manifestation of the spirit of antichrist. So to answer your question, Elliot, yes, absolutely. As with all of the signs, I think we see them present, having been present since Christ came, continuing to be present, but increasing. And so obviously, just as we mentioned, you know, verse 3, Jesus Christ is not going to come again until what? Until the apostasy. So apostasy has been taking place from the very beginning, will continue to take place, will increase, but then there will be a final apostasy, which Paul just simply refers to as the apostasy. The apostasy. That's verse 3. Some translations write until the rebellion. But again, it's the exact same root that is being used here. It's a great falling away from the Lord. So absolutely, with that and with Antichrist, you have an increase and a culmination. And Jesus is saying, look, church of God, be alert, be on guard, be attentive, be awake, be sober, be watchful. You know, these are the repeated commands and phrases and words that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John use to challenge us as the New Testament church. Look around you. You can look at the sky and predict the weather. Who cares? Can 
when you look at what's going on around you and know the spiritual time, know the spiritual season, know what Jesus and the Father are up to. Tribulation, apostasy, antichrist. These are all signs of the times. These are all indications that the kingdom of God is here and growing. They are all assurances that Jesus is coming again. Okay? Any questions? Yeah, please, Libby. So, um, it sounds like you're saying that there's a spirit of Antichrist, like, for example, the conversation you have with the Muslim of Jesus is just a great teacher or a prophet, um, and then the actual man of lawlessness. Is that like the two parts to it? Is that okay? It seems to be what John is saying in First in John is that there is a spirit of Antichrist that manifests itself in specific individuals. So that's why I think it's right to refer to the spirit of Antichrist in a general sense. But then that spirit of Antichrist is specifically in operation in flesh and blood individuals. It seems that because, you know, the Apostle John is saying, look, anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. Well, that's not a general spirit. That's a specific person. But if anyone denies that Jesus came in the flesh, that's the spirit of Antichrist at work in that specific flesh and blood person. So again, even though the Apostle Paul doesn't use the word Antichrist, I think it's absolutely right to say the man of lawlessness that's described in the passage that Karen read for us is the ultimate, final, most awful manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist. And because Paul calls him a man, it seems like he's going to be a flesh and blood individual. Now, again, you know, everybody loves to try to predict who's it going to be. You know, the Reformation Church thought maybe, well, one of the popes, you know, because they were some pretty nasty guys. So, and again, that's not why the signs are given. The signs are not given to try to discern, you know, the exact moment of Christ's return, but more to anchor us in these assurances but to know that at some point, there is going to be an ultimate manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist in this man of lawlessness. And, you know, we could dive into that and, and try to tear it up a lot more than we're going to tonight. You know, what does it mean that he takes his place in God's temple? Well, just in passing, that's why there are a lot of believers who are convinced that the temple actually has to be physically re be rebuilt. That's where they get it from. How can he take his place in God's temple if God's temple is destroyed? But the challenge with that that we got into last week is, well, the temple's not rebuilt. So that actually means Jesus can't come. And that actually completely diminishes that sense of imminency and urgency and expectancy. Because basically, if I'm a lazy, fleshly Christian, I can just say, well, hey, if Jesus can't return until the man of lawlessness returns, comes and the man of lawlessness can't come until the temple's be being rebuilt how can he appear in the temple if the temple's not being rebuilt well the temple hasn't been rebuilt so i can just kind of you know take it easy because there's no way jesus is coming back anytime soon you see how dangerous that becomes you see how dangerous that becomes so whatever paul means by saying the man of lawlessness takes up his place in the temple of god 
it can't be that literally the temple has to be rebuilt or Jesus can't come again. Because that's not how Jesus gives any of these signs. Because he says, my return can be at any moment. That sense of imminency, that sense of urgency. So however we understand the signs of the time, however we understand the events that are leading up to the return of Jesus Christ, we can never take them to mean that they tell us that there's no way Jesus can come this year or next year because this hasn't taken place. Wrong. Then we're misunderstanding them. We're misunderstanding them. But you oftentimes hear evangelical Christians talking about the necessity of the temple being rebuilt. This is why, because of that reference in 2 Thessalonians. But to me, no way. The temple may be rebuilt, I don't know. But it can't be that Jesus can't return until the temple is rebuilt, because then right now, there's no urgency. There's no urgency. The temple hasn't been rebuilt. It would take you know, years to rebuild the temple, so you and I are fine. No way that we have to be on vigilant, expectant, watchful, sober guard for the return of Jesus Christ because the temple hasn't been rebuilt yet. So there's no way that that can be what Paul is indicating there. But anyways, the idea here, of course, is this man of lawlessness. I think it's right to see him as the ultimate manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist. Yeah. Yeah, please. Oh, Richard, yeah, please. Yes, yeah, so to, to uh, address Libby's uh, earlier question about the Lord knows those that are his, because yes. I think it's somewhat relevant. I think it's coming from 2 Timothy 19. Um, I was going to guess, but I thought I'd better look it up. And I, I've been taught that the context is that it's the, the, just before that, the verses teach with false teachers. And when I say false teachers, I mean really harmful false teachers, which one could consider perhaps um, aligned with the spirit of Antichrist. And so the idea is the Lord knows those that are, who are his relates primarily to who, which teachers are his and which are not, rather than a global statement. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make a case, but that's... Uh, either way, but that's what I've heard is that it, it it's narrow. It's um, I mean the, the the verse continues. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. But um, anyway, those uh, that's what I've heard. Yeah, thank you so much, Richard. So yeah, for those of you who didn't catch it, the reference is Second Timothy two nineteen. This is the passage that Libby was referring to earlier, and it says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And the point that Richard is making is that earlier, Paul is talking about some who have gone astray referring actually to a couple by name. It says they've wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. So it's not just that they have fallen away, but they're teaching others false doctrine. So that's the point that Richard was making. So again, you know, with this idea of apostasy, 
I realize that for many of us, this can be a little bit of a jarring New Testament teaching. And I would say, if you are looking at a New Testament passage about apostasy, and it doesn't give you even just a momentary pause, then you're probably missing the gravity of the passage. I mean, it should, I mean, these warnings are there, not because we should just treat them lightly and say, oh, you know, doesn't, doesn't impact me. However, if you're looking at a passage of apostasy, and then you start to get, you know, tossed into incredible doubt and fear and uncertainty, that's not the intention of those passages either. So the New Testament, I think, wants us to live in that, that, that place where we take the warning seriously. We can't just be glib about it. And yet, on the other hand, it ultimately drives us to the assurance that is ours in Christ. Because the threat of apostasy doesn't contradict and ultimately undermine the assurance of salvation. 1 John chapter 5, John says that Jesus came so that we might know that we have eternal life. That's why I love the doctrine of perseverance. Because perseverance prevents me from taking a spiritual vacation. Perseverance prevents me from saying, well, you know, I accepted Jesus, you know, 50 years ago in VBS, so I'm fine. I can live however I want. No way. No way. Perseverance says every day I walk out my faith. Every day I work out my salvation in fear and trembling. Every day I give evidence of the genuine work of Christ in my life. So again, as believers, I think when we look at a passage that talks about apostasy, it should jar us a little. Not because we think we're apostate, but because the threat is real. And yet, ultimately, it should drive us to either even greater assurance, knowing that our assurance comes from the completed work of Christ. Knowing that our assurance comes from what Christ has done and our faith in that. And hey, today, I'm going to keep believing. And by God's grace, tomorrow, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to keep believing. And the day after that, by God's grace, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to keep believing. So, I think, again, as with so many things that the New Testament does, we can't just swing the pendulum all the way to one side or the other. We can't let passages of apostasy just wreck our faith and leave us in utter spiritual turmoil and conflict and doubt and fear. No. That's why the most, to me, the most jarring passage on apostasy, Hebrews chapter 6, a couple verses later says, but for you... I am confident of much better things. For you, I am confident of much better things. The threat of apostasy is real. But for you who are persevering, I'm confident of much better things. So we can't just say, yeah, I'm saved. I'm fine. I can live however I want. I don't have to worry about day-to-day -day obedience. No way. No way. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? No. May it never be. Okay? But certainly, for some of us, apostasy is one of those teachings of the New Testament that we could probably 
be okay if it wasn't there, but it is there. It is there. And so we absolutely have to give honor to the Lord by understanding it as best we can with the wisdom that he gives us. Okay? Anything else about Antichrist or apostasy or these signs that indicate opposition to the kingdom of God? Yeah. So thank you for um, emphasizing how easy it is for us um, to be deceived or, you know, for apostasies to occur even within the body of Christ. But, uh, you know, going back to Second Thessalonians, and, and I'm sure I'm pushing everything that's, that's not supposed to be addressed, but, you know, it says he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And um, in other places, you know, we are the temple. Our body is a temple. Um, the body of Christ is a temple. That God inhabits the praises of his people. That is the temple. Um, so, again, maybe I'm not supposed to go this far, but I wonder if he will exalt himself within the body of Christ and so deceive many um, because there's going to be, you know, it's going to be followed with signs and wonders and, um, and, and it'll, it, you know, we are a people that loves to be wowed. We love to see something dramatic and fabulous and, and never seen before and be stunned by it. And so maybe apostasy, uh, some of it may be driven by our, our desire to see the supernatural as opposed to the doctrine of perseverance, which is whether it's the natural or the supernatural, I will still serve God. But anyway, many comments, not really a question. Yeah, no, I think definitely thinking in a possibility that because the appearing of the man of lawlessness is associated with the apostasy, which is a great turning away from the Lord. Well, a great turning away from the Lord has to be by people who are at least giving lip service to the Lord, or at least outwardly walking with the Lord. So is it possible what Paul is saying is that he will manifest himself in the midst of those who claim to be followers of the Lord? I think that's possible. I mean, with me, when we start to dive into these things, I'm perfectly okay with the relatively general nature that the New Testament speaks of these things. And not necessarily having a precise answer for every aspect, I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly okay saying I'm not really sure what Paul means by setting himself up in the temple of God. The one thing that I really try hard to come against is any interpretation of that phrase that would undermine what I believe is the clear emphasis of so many other passages of Scripture. So that's why I emphasize, I really don't believe it can be a physical temple in Jerusalem. Because if that's the case, then it completely undermines dozens of verses that talk about the imminent return of Jesus Christ and how at every moment of the church age, we as believers have to be vigilant. So, I mean, maybe you're saying, you know, Dave, you want your cake and eat it too. And, and maybe that's true. So, with a phrase like that, I'm perfectly okay saying, I'm not 100% sure how that's going to sort out. And I'm okay with that. But any interpretation of that that seems to undermine the strong emphasis of so many other passages of scripture, that I have a problem. So, so is it possible what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. 
you know, absolutely. Maybe in some way he manifests himself within the body of Christ. And that's what leads to the apostasy. And that is, you know, the temple of God, the presence of God. Certainly, certainly. But let's try to finish this up here. We've got a couple minutes left. So then this last group of evidences are the ones that maybe we know the best, because at least to some extent, I feel like these are the ones that are referred to frequently. This whole idea of wars and rumors of wars and famine and earthquake. And again, these are sometimes referred to as signs that are evidences of God's judgment, of God's judgment. So again, we find both of these clustered together in Matthew 24, 6 to 8. Matthew 24, 6 to 8. And we'll just quickly read that. Matthew 24, 6 to 8. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Okay? So remember, all of these are the beginning of birth pains. But then if you jump later in the chapter to verse 33, Jesus says, even so, when you, are, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. So there's that tension that we talked about last time. On the one hand, when we hear about a war, we don't necessarily say Jesus is coming tonight. And yet, on the other hand, when we hear about a war, we don't say, oh, man, the return of Christ is millennia away. It's both. It's that tension of both. Because what Jesus is saying in all these are the beginning of birth pains, that it's impossible to say when we see these times, the end must be this week. Because the church has been seeing these signs for 2,000 years. The church has been seeing wars and rumors of wars. The church has been seeing famines and earthquakes. And we can include all the other ones. The church has been seeing tribulation and apostasy and antichrist. The church has been seeing the advance of the gospel. So these are all signs that on the one hand, yes, the time is short. The end is near. It's right at the door. and yet. Not in the sense that we would think of it, oh, it means it's next week. You see how Jesus is challenging us to hold both of these things together in somewhat tension so that we understand this rightly. But these are indications of the judgment of God against a fallen world. We see that specifically in the book of Revelation. You know, all of the judgments that the book of Revelation describes, where are they coming from? They're all coming from the throne of the Lamb of God. All of those wars and devastations of creation on the land and the sea and the sky and the trees and all of these devastations, where are they coming from? The horrific boils and sores and all these nasty things that are coming upon sinful humanity, where are they coming from? 
They're coming from the throne of the Lamb of God. That's what the book of Revelation is saying. So we have these signs that are clearly evidences of opposition to God. But then we also have signs that are evidences of the judgment of God. The just, deserved judgment of God. And so sometimes you hear of these things described as the birth pains of the Messiah. Again, from verse 8. Um, or sometimes they have birth pangs. You know, it's basically the same thing. The birth pangs or the birth pains of Messiah. So these signs that are evidences of the judgment of God are the birth pains or the birth pangs of Messiah. Okay. Now, one other thing, just to bring it back full circle. Remember when the disciples were asking the question in verse 3. When will these things be? When will the destruction of Jerusalem take place? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? I believe in Matthew 24, beginning in about verse 15 to roughly about verse 21, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, how does that fit in? Well, in one sense, it fits in because, again, the disciples' question in verse 3 is, when is the destruction of Jerusalem? And when is the end of the age? Now, again, in their mind, they probably saw this as a single event. Of course, now we know it's not because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So in the grand scheme, it seems as if in verses 4 to 28, Jesus is talking about these birth pains. Jesus is talking about these signs. And then sort of in the middle of that, one of the strongest and one of the hardest birth pains of the Messiah was the destruction of Jerusalem. And so you see, actually, in an incredibly powerful way, Jesus embeds the answer to one question within the context of the larger question. And that's why when you're reading Matthew 24, some of it seems to be specifically talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But some of it seems to be talking about much broader signs of the entire New Testament age. I think, in fact, it is both. Okay? So, these signs, these are things that we as the church need to be aware of, on watch for, and realize that Jesus was saying 2,000 years ago, these things are going to be occurring throughout the entirety of the church age. But they are also an indication that he is coming. So not to be used the way we so frequently hear them used, to try to come up with an exact date. I mean, I don't know how anyone can read Matthew 24 and say, oh, Jesus gave these signs so that we could predict the date of his return. I mean, yeah. Very, to me, very disappointing to take these signs that way. No, I think we take them as the way we've been talking about all night. Okay?
But any concluding comments or questions before we wind things down here? Yeah. Uh, this this may be a minor point, but in verse 33, 24, 33, um, he's it, it's where it says, uh, it is near right at the door. The, I guess the immediate antecedent would be summer. So that the it refers to summer. Uh, translation I'm looking at, it says he is near right at the door, which would be going back to a previous antecedent, which would be the son of man, the coming of the son of man. I guess they both make sense. I wonder, you know, if it's a difference in translation. Uh, he's, you know, it's talking about the, the coming of the Son of Man, and then he's saying, "This is how you know when summer's near, when the fig tree, you know, when its leaves get tender and all that." Yeah, I mean, Greek is one of those languages where the the gender of the article refers to the gender of the noun or the thing being referred to. Hmm. So he, I mean, he can refer to a male but it can also just be referring to the, the gender of the noun. But I think to, to answer your question, I think what Jesus is doing here is in verses 29 to 31, Jesus is clearly describing his second coming. In 29 to 31, Jesus is clearly describing his second coming as sort of the culmination to this whole section, this whole section that began in verse four, and is now culminating in verse 31. Then what he's doing in verse 32 is he's giving us a parable. And he's basically saying, look, just like he was talking about, you know, when you look at the sky, you know how to predict the weather. In verse 32, he says, look, learn the lesson from the fig tree. You know, depending on what the fig tree is doing, you know how close the harvest is. Are the leaves just budding? Are the fruit getting ripe? You know, where are you at? That's what he's saying. Now, learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. So in other words, that idea that, look, you know how to look at the sky and predict the weather. You know how to look at the fig tree and predict the harvest. But can you look around you and know what is going on spiritually? So then in verse 33, he says, even so, when you see all these things, what are all these things? Well, all of these things are the things that he's been talking about since verse 4. All of these things that are the signs of the New Testament age. All of these things that are indications that he is coming. When you see these things, you know that it is near right at the door. But what is the it? I think what he's referring to is his return. I think the it that he's referring to is not what immediately proceeds in verse 32. <coughs> Excuse me but the description of his return in verses 29 to 31. I think that's what he's talking about. Because this is what we talked about, Abelio's question a couple of weeks ago, because then when he goes on to say, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, what are all of these things? These things are all of the signs that he was talking about. Remember, not, not the return, because he says, when you see all these things in verse 33, you know it's close meaning his return is close. So then in verse 34, when he talks about all these things, it's everything up to his return. And the first generation of the church did live to see all those things. They saw apostasy. They saw tribulation. They saw the advance of the gospel. They saw persecution. They saw antichrist. They saw these things. That's what Jesus is getting at there. But I think, Ted, 
to answer your question, the it is the return of Jesus Christ. Again, tying in with that idea that it's imminent, it's right at the door. So we need to live with that sense of, of urgency and expectancy. So, yeah, of course. Well, it's 830. Um, I thought we were going to get through that a little quicker than we did. But anyways, hopefully this has been helpful. If you grab the sheet that says the nature of the second coming, you are welcome to hang on to that. There will be more copies of it when we meet again. Now, in light of Christmas and New Year's, we are not going to meet in two weeks, which is December 28th, because I know a lot of people have that week as a more relaxed week. So we will not meet the week of December 28th. However, our next meeting has not yet been nailed down. We will either meet January the 4th or we will meet January the 11th. And again, I realize if we meet the 11th, the men's ministry is the 12th. But um, because I'm going to be gone for two weeks in January in Peru, I don't want us to wait until February until we meet again. So we will not meet the 28th, but we will meet in January either the 4th or the 11th. And then the next meeting after that will be in February. So just keep your eyes open for an email or we will be announcing it on Sunday once we've determined whether it will be the 4th or the 11th. Okay, but let me close this out with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much that you love us enough to give us signs of what you are up to. You don't keep yourself hidden and unknowable to us. And you don't keep your plans and your purposes and your activity in this world completely convoluted and undiscernible to us. God, you make yourself known and you make yourself clear. And if nothing else from what we've looked at tonight, I pray that each one of us would walk away with the absolute assurance that you want us to know who you are and you want us to know what you are doing. You want us to know what you are up to in this world. And even in the most heartbreaking and, and, and just sad of circumstances like apostasy and tribulation, even in that, may we take great encouragement and hope in the simple fact that these are all assurances that the kingdom of God is here and facing opposition. Because, Jesus, if your kingdom's not here, then there's nothing to fight against. And God, we thank you that the efforts of the enemy, the efforts of the kingdom of God are ultimately futile and destined to fail. It is impossible for the kingdom of God to win. And so even though we see opposition, and even though we see all of these things, God, we know that it's just a reminder that your kingdom in the end will win. And Jesus, we thank you as well for the constant reminders that you give us in every circumstance around us that you are coming again. You are coming again. Nothing will stop you. And when you come, you absolutely will bring to completion the work that you have started. 
And so, Father, finally, I pray that you would help each one of us to persevere. Help us not to grow weary. Help us not to get discouraged. Help us not to give up. Help us to persevere. Because the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Thank you for that. And Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. Thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you for being on Zoom. Great to be together. Lord, bless the rest of your night.